this conquest is framed not only as God's directive, you're supposed to take this land from the people who are living in there, sometimes that means the very explicit orders kill people not even just as um, the enemy combatants in a war, but there are times where a whole city, once they take the city, they're supposed to kill everybody in it, men, women, children, and burn the whole thing. Mm. Um, and this is put on the lips of God, as this is the commandment that God is... Now again, we could say, the the story doesn't say, and from now on, anytime you want to declare God says you're allowed to kill people, you can, but this in, in this story by itself is complicated, to say the least, and difficult. Um, and then we're going to have to ask the guardrail question of how do we avoid making the leap of, oh, it sort of happened in this story, therefore, manifest destiny, we can kill whoever we want because national expansion or whatever. Um, maybe we could also note that this is, in, in this story, the whole book of Joshua, there are some of those, like, maybe lesser known greater hits, but like the story of the Battle of Jericho and the walls, as the song says, come and tumbling down, mm -hmm. that there are moments that are, that feel less violent, but that even that's only a partial part of the story, right? I mean, like, the, the, the walls come down without anybody getting out of sword, they're marching around just blowing their ram's horns, and sort of God miraculously delivers them. But once the walls come down, then they go and kill people to take over the city. So even, like, the, the Bible school version of that story is sort of left hanging out, well, once the walls come down, uh, what do they do? Oh, yeah, they kill all the people inside, um, and Rahab survives, uh, but most everybody else gets killed in the battle. Yeah, Rahab is one of my... I don't want to say favorite stories of women in the Bible. It's more like I really like it because it's naturally st a story about a woman in the Bible. Sure. Um, but, yeah, she she's this interesting woman because she is not Jewish. She's mm -hmm. not an Israelite. And she helps the spies infiltrate her city because she says, I know that God has given you this land. Mm -hmm. And, it, like, to me that seems like such an odd moment because mm -hmm. she's she's helping this invading force kill all of her people mm -hmm. and she's like totally cool and fine with it and is just helping them but it does guarantee that her family gets safe because it's her entire family is spared and fun side note she becomes an ancestor of jesus because the, the yep. you know the lineage we get in matthew traces all the way back to include rahab so I mean, there's lots of ways that that story is interesting, but to me, it, it's one more of those moments that highlights what is a you know well-worn sawhorse now that the history is written by the victors. That like what we usually call somebody who betrays their own people to allow enemy people to conquer them is treason. We usually, we usually call it being a traitor, and usually that's one of those things that on a lot of people's list you get put to death for. But because the Israelites win this battle, her story gets remembered from the Israelite perspective. She helped us in taking this land that God gave to us, and so we saved her family. And it, it, it's, it's difficult because, you know, this raises what I keep thinking in my mind is the Esther-Persian problem that mm -hmm. we, uh, sort of has kicked off our conversation. That what, what saves one people sometimes comes at the cost of a lot of other people's lives. And what do we do when the Bible doesn't present that ambiguously and say, yeah, that's messy, but instead says, yep, and this is right, all these people died, isn't that good? That's a lot harder for us to... Proclaim and say the word of the Lord. <laughs> so, uh, how, how many? How do, how do you? How do any of us process uh, what what happens? Not just in the Jericho story, although maybe that's a good sort of a case in point. But the the whole of the the, the book of Joshua and the, the whole conquest. I think for me, it's a struggle, and it's kind of the same struggle that when I think of modern day Palestine, mm -hmm. of 
you know, back post-World War II when it was like, oh yes, this great injustice happened to the Jewish people. Let's give them back their land. Let's give them Israel back. And without taking too much time to like look at, oh, hey, no, like it's not like Israel is just this empty land. The Palestines live there. And, you know, we've seen in modern day those two peoples clash as they try to figure out how to live together and I think we can safely say that they have not done that well because mm -hmm. there's a lot of oppression that's mm -hmm. happening in mm -hmm. Palestine um, and I think here again in Judges we see the Jewish people who have been finally freed from slavery trying to return to the promised land that God has promised them and but there's people already there Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a tough situation. I, you know, th there's that part of me that is a 21st century American Christian who wants to say, can't we all just get along? Couldn't you just coexist? <laughs> right. But in reality, there probably was not enough land and not enough resources for that to happen. But again, there's that part of me that's 21st century American that wants to say, can't we all just get along? <laughs> right, right. I think it, it added, added, Adding to the challenge for me is that um, there are points in the conquest narrative where God is framed as saying, not just because I love you, Israelites, you get this land, but that they are meant to be the divine judgment instrument on against those pagan people, the Amalekites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, that like almost like just like God reserves the right to smite and zap Pharaoh with plagues and things like that, now the chosen instrument for divine judgment isn't plagues or locusts or blood in the river, but a nation of invading people. Um, and again, like the, the, the framers of the, the books of the Bible, the, the writers of the Torah and Joshua, seem comfortable with that thinking of like, well, just like it was okay for God to zap the, the you know, Egyptians, um, that meant that um, it should be okay with, uh, God to use people now as the agent of, ju of judgment, but that again starts raising all kinds of flags for me. That how do we, how do we one go like whatever is going on there? How do we make sure we don't then say, well, anytime I want to do something that involves killing other people, I'm just the agent of God. That that seems like really really dangerous. So I I asked this question. Um, actually, I was asked this question back early early on this year. I was doing a series on you know, on questions people had about scripture mm -hmm. on violence mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. So I, I reached back and, and spoke with uh, one of my Old Testament professor friends about this story. Mm -hmm. And some interesting things, like he brought up the idea that Israel is just, you know, God's, God uses Israel as his way to bring about judgment. It's, it's an and instrument of judgment like a plague. Okay. Yeah, you know, and, and there's so much we can go on about that, but one of the things, he, he spoke specifically about the book of Joshua, because I was talking about just general violence, and and something he pointed out is, you know, this is a conquest narrative. Mm -hmm. um, like any ancient Near East conquest narrative, uh, it takes a little bit farther than maybe uh, what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not that that makes it any better. Um, but that, to, that raises different problems. But it raises too, other right? problems, too. Like, you know, so why does God allow, you know, this to become scripture? The story, right, yeah. You know, um, but it makes me, it helps just a little bit to say <laughs> that, well, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as Joshua makes it sound like, okay, okay. but then it, like, it, like you said, it raises a whole nother question. Okay. Why is this part of 
the Jewish and Christian canon. Right. If it's an exaggeration. Right. And I mean, a, a way that we could like begin to tease at that piece is what what would make us think it's an exaggeration. We could at least say. Archaeologically, there are a lot of uh, folks who do the work of digging and that say, like, mm-hmm. places that um, are mentioned as being towns or fortified towns in the area that Joshua takes place either were already rubble piles that didn't have you know, inhabited towns at this time or weren't as big. Mm-hmm. So, like, th- again, archaeology will sometimes give us new surprises and you get a, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls when you didn't think there was going to be you know, anything uh, like that to be found. So there may be new evidence out there that says it is exactly like the book of Joshua describes it. But archaeology at this point, and they've been digging for you know, more than 150 <laughs> years in that area to find things, um, suggests that yeah, may- maybe this is a little more melodramatic or a little more uh, amped up uh, than, mm-hmm. than what actually would have happened. Well, and I also think at least for me, when I picture these towns, like like Jericho, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of towns of like thousands. Mm-hmm. When we're probably talking about towns of hundreds, right, right, right. Again, it doesn't make it any better, but at least it, you know, like we've got to get into that mindset. Sure. sure. Um, that maybe these towns, and plus the folks that they kick out of the promised land, continue to show up. In scripture, so it's not a complete genocide of a particular people group. Right. Although, again, what's part of what's part of the difficulty is even the rest of the the Hebrew scriptures live with the tension of God commanded you like them a lot, and because you didn't, they keep being problems. Mm-hmm. When like we might be like again to borrow your helpful phrase, Sarah, really why why did this require wiping people? And again, later in the the storytelling of the Old Testament, there is this: you needed to be separate and distinct, so you didn't turn after the ways of other gods and their wickedness and their injustice. And I, I get that. I get that idea that if you are surrounded by rottenness and all that kind of thing, you're going to be tempted to sort of yeah, well, let's do what everybody else does. Um, but man, like when my kids come home and say like they they had a friend at school who was name calling or bullying or something, I don't say kill your friend so that he won't pick, <laughs> yeah. pick up his bad habits. I say you got to learn to be different, and you know we're not supposed to do that. And it seems like there are moments in the Hebrew scriptures where God sort of has that perspective of you're going to be different from all the nations. And that difference is important. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be my peculiar treasure, like the book mm-hmm. of Exodus says. But that doesn't automatically lead, lead into, in every instance, now go kill everybody. It's interesting to me that by the time you get to the book of Joshua, they made that leap. Not just that we're going to be distinct and different as a different kind of people who practice justice and mercy and worship Yahweh, but that we're also allowed to kill the people who live in this land. That, that's a lot more difficult to... Again, for me, it's a lot more difficult... On a Sunday, when that's the scripture, to then and then say, and the word of the Lord, and like, thanks that, be to God. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, when everybody else, and now I'm telling everybody, you're all supposed to respond. Thanks be to God for this. That's mm-hmm. it's difficult. Um, it it's interesting to me too that um, you you'd mentioned Erica that the the this, these people groups show up not only through the rest of the. Hebrew scriptures, but in stories in the Gospels, too, like the, the famous story about Jesus and the uh, woman who's got a daughter who is tormented by a demon, and Mark's Gospel calls her Syrophoenician, and Matthew uses the old-school language of calling her Canaanite, which is a way of, like, that's like old, like, like yeah. there's a woman who should have been wiped out back in the days of Joshua, and she's still around. Um, and yet, Jesus' response somehow is like, well, when I see a person who my ancestors would have murdered, his response is not, I will murder you and, you know, finish what they started. But, no, I will, it takes, it takes that weird conversation mm-hmm. they have, but he heals her daughter and lifts this woman up as an example of faith that's better than any of the faith he's seen in Israel. Um, 
and I guess one thing that I that I, I think has to be a part of our conversation about the story of the conquest is when Jesus is presented with similar circumstances or people, how does he respond? And that whatever Joshua meant in its original setting, for followers of Jesus, Jesus becomes the norm of the lens through which we read those stories. And to me, that seems a really important way of at least how I process this. That yeah, I, I don't have a, a, a canon or a scripture that ends with the book of Joshua. Mm-hmm. And it seems important to me to say whatever this story meant in its original context... Um, Jesus is the lens through which I read Joshua, not Joshua is the lens through which I make sense of Jesus, I guess, if that makes sense. And I think that's really helpful, because, uh, like, I, I, similarly, you know, with the with the Jewish people trying to remain set apart throughout the Old Testament, there was all kinds of rules and regulations mm-hmm. about, you know, don't marry foreigners, right. you know, don't marry people from Moab, don't marry Canaanites, don't marry such and such, because that will just you know, then your sons and daughters will follow their gods mm-hmm. instead of our God. Mm-hmm. But yet, we have stories like Ruth, mm-hmm. who is the grandmother of King David. Mm-hmm. Obviously, King David, you know, and his father, Jesse, did not follow the Moab God because mm-hmm. Ruth was a Moabite. Right. Um, similarly, Rahab also is a ancestor to to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And David, yeah. And David, yeah. <laughs> But, like, yeah, that those stories are important to getting to the point of Jesus. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I guess part of what that says to me, too, is, like, um, Jesus, to, I mean, it's interesting sometimes in the scriptures to see the way Jesus engages with what would have been, for him, the Bible, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, mm-hmm. and the prophets. And in a way that probably wasn't universally accepted in the first century, Jesus does give an awful lot of weight to the voices of the prophets, whereas there were others, like the Samaritans, who like only would have held on to what we call the Torah. Um, and Jesus notices that the prophets from time to time say things like, now outsiders in other nations are going to be included in the covenant people of Israel. When, when Messiah comes, there's going to be this grand inclusion. Um, and Jesus gives a lot of weight to that, that not every rabbinic voice did, and certainly not earlier voices in Israel's history did, that saw this as a, yes, we have the divine right to kill people when God said, and, and this land is our land forever, and exclusively ours, um, in a way that, like, it, that's not a possibility when Jesus comes on the scene, the Roman Empire is occupying it, and Jesus' response is not, this is our land, gosh darn it, I'm going to take it back, but no, we live with an empire, and Jesus seems okay with, there's going to be people around us who are of different nationalities, and we have to live with them. Steve, you mentioned something about, like, you know, them killing to get into this land, and Mm -hmm. how that's, you know, how it, it, this is a, kind of a one-time thing in in the history. I mean, it happens a lot, because it happens with every town, but this is kind of like a one-time thing for Israel. In Israel's history, you mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, as an overall, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm, I'm thinking, like, you know, after the exile and when Judah comes back, mm-hmm. you know, the nation of Judah, God doesn't, again, command them to go and kill. I mean, actually, right. they were given permission by the foreigners, right? you know, by Persia and others to come back in. So it, it's, you know, I, when I wrestle with this, I, I go a little Calvinist when I wrestle with this. <laughs> I'll be honest, because uh-huh. it's just like the sovereignty of God. Right, like, okay, right. God said it. We're going to do it. That's that's it. Uh-huh. 
Um, I, I don't necessarily, as an Arminian, right, <laughs> Wesleyan, I really don't like going that way. <laughs> um, that's so the opposite of what... As long as you declare it's your free will to go Calvinist, then you're fine, right? <laughs> it's a to- like, almost the exact opposite of what my denomination in, mm-hmm. in my theology generally, generally says. But, um, you know, sometimes I just have to look at this and be like, this was a one-time event. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened over, you know, and I mean, that's just, I'm not God, and apparently God had bigger, mm-hmm. could see the bigger picture, and for whatever reason, God said, this is how we're going to do things, and mm-hmm. someday in heaven I'll get an answer to that question, but... <laughs> it, it, like, in a way, it feels almost to me then sort of like the story of Abraham being told to sacrifice his son, that, like, mm-hmm. everywhere else the Bible is super clear, don't yeah. murder your children, don't you know, offer human sacrifice, but here's God very clearly saying to Abraham kill your son until the moment that God says, nope, I no, you don't have to. Well, but he says no to Abraham where he doesn't say no here. Well, right, 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 right. Like, they're, they're, like, when I read Joshua, it seems like every time I kind of keep waiting for that, nope, I was just testing right. you, don't uh-huh. do this. Right. And then that, like, keeps never happening. Right. And then, like, the book of Joshua is so gory and gruesome. Like, yeah. they're yeah. very, like, let me describe the rivers of blood. Right. And... It, it, it's kind of horrifying to read. Yeah. But is that part of just the nature of the genre of, of being a conquest book? Which it could be. Because I also wonder how exaggerated it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, like, a- again, they've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years. Previously, they were all slaves. How on earth did they suddenly get weapons and the expertise to, like, mm-hmm. organize themselves into, like, fighting groups and mm-hmm. who taught them how to fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, so, you know, I'm guessing that there's quite a bit of an exaggeration that's happening in the Book of Joshua. And, and while, like, the original slaves that came out of Egypt would have been very strong from the work that they did... <laughs> They're not around anymore. No, sure, sure. And, yeah, like, for, for that matter, like, the, the, yeah, I suppose brick, yeah, you're, like, moving stones and brick and things like that. Yeah, that, that's... You might not have the skills to <laughs> fight, but at least you're strong. <laughs> right. You know, right, but right. that generation is now gone. Right. You know, the only ones from that generation is Moses, and, it, and even he's gone at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting, like, where do you get the skill set and the ability to do all this? Right. As well as just the weapons. Right? Oh, Suddenly so yeah. they all have, like, swords and stuff, and it's like, mm. Maybe that was some of the plundering that they got from Egypt when they left. <laughs> they're like, we're going to carry these swords around for 40 years. They're not going to be useful yet, but man, one day. <laughs> it, like, it, in some ways, like, I guess that's one of those points where, like, the biblical narrative itself almost has one of those, like, don't ask about Cain's wife kind of things. So, like, you know what? <laughs> Here be dragons, and we're not going <laughs> to guess about it. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth noting mm-hmm. that the biblical story as it's presented has, it requires you to imagine that somehow they have access to a... Because most of the time they're not fighting with ram's horns and just tooting trumpets. Most yeah. of the time it is weapons and um, bloodshed and whatever. Um, and, yeah, well, where does that come from? I don't know. The text isn't interested in answering that question. And I suppose that's a possible direction you can resolve this and say, well, I'm sorry, I got a bunch of questions the Bible isn't willing to answer. I should live with it. Or you could say, maybe that says something about how this story is meant to be read, too. Um, and that's, that suggests something maybe as well. The j- same way the, the Bible doesn't answer the where's Cain's wife come from and just sort of says that's not how this story goes. I'm telling a different story. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe there are moments where the text itself kind of winks at us like you're suggesting, Sarah. 
could the conquest, like a good chunk of it, sort of be more like a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of deal with, you know, God does a lot of more of the acting, but, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm just throwing out a, a theory. I, it could be complete heresy and, you know, forgive me, God, but heresy, <laughs> you know. Well, and that is part of conquest stories, especially when there's multiple gods on right. the battlefield. Because it, it, it becomes less of what your people are capable of, and it's whoever has the strongest god mm-hmm. is right. going to win. Right. And that's how you're going to know who has the stronger god, who, you know, you know that's that's kind of why Rome and, and Greece had gods of war, because mm-hmm. those were the ones that were fighting on the battlefield. Right. Well, doesn't that happen? At, who was the person that held his arms out? Yeah, that, there's there's that story with Moses at an earlier battle okay. in the wilderness, and then uh, there are also times where Joshua is sort of given those moments of divine revelations to either the angel armies or you know mm-hmm. like where there's this oh God's fighting on our side, and that's certainly a part of what's going on in the book of Joshua. That idea that how will how will we the Israelites know that our God is a real God, and how will the other nations know that our God is a real God? Well, we win the battle, and that's convenient in some ways. Um, but um, I guess one of the things that is, again, in this whole sweep of, uh, of Scripture sort of gets res- resolved or dealt with. But later on in the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel has to has to wrestle with a loss that then gets reinterpreted as this God allowed. Like when they do go into yeah. exile, all their old thinking of, well, you know who's the real God because you win the battle. And then Israel had to like reinvent its, its entire faith after the exile and say, oh, well, we still believe that God is God. Yahweh is God, but we lost against the Babylonians, and nobody stopped us from getting murdered and taken away and basically conquered. And what do we do with that? So Israel's faith really goes through a complete reinvention at the exile, and maybe that requires you have to start with a, if your team wins, God must have been on your side thinking at the beginning. But the whole reason that Israel's taken off into exile is because they left God behind and said, you know what, God, we can do this on our own. Right, right, yeah. So, I mean... Right, but I mean, like, the the way that the prophets envision or, or talk mm-hmm. about the exile there's never a sense of our god is too weak to, to fight off the babylonian gods yeah. it's instead god allowed this to happen because that's punishment for us or what, whatever but that's a that's a new idea in israel's faith mm-hmm. when you get to the exile and so much of earlier israelites faith is that idea you're talking about sarah of you know who's a real god because your side won the same way my goodness we're still doing with football games right like you know or and and honestly we do we do with wars today right whoever uh-huh. won or you know for that matter we we keep doing we've done this all my life long certainly for further back that whoever wins an election must have been god's choice rather than, that's not how this works you know yeah. um or at least that's not the way the the bible eventually resolves that that mm-hmm. you know like there are times when the bible does that whoever won must have been god's pick and whoever lost must not have been but there's other times the bible says no explicitly not that and blows it up um and I guess it, it does seem important, maybe in the whole sweep of how the story of Scripture goes, that it moves first from that winner must have God's approval thinking, and then the Bible sort of critiques that itself and goes, that's inadequate. And again, part of how we move toward Jesus is to see God's greatest victory in a moment of what looks like utter defeat, dying at the hands of the empire. Um, but I guess that only makes sense or that only has its power if you started with the idea of, oh, winners must have God on their side. Mm-hmm. And then having that broken open by God. I think that's the beauty of scripture. Is it so often, and a lot of people say it contradicts itself, but really it just flips the script. <laughs> and it, you know, 
and it kind of keeps us guessing. And, and I hate to use that that language, but we're not God. We can't understand God fully. Mm -hmm. We never will this side of eternity. And, and so we have to be able to weigh the, the two sides and be mm -hmm. like, okay, God gives Israel victory over all these people groups so they can come into the promised land, but then God gives victory to Babylon mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. later. And it just, I, I think it helps, at least for me, it helps me just to say, okay, God, whatever you're going to do, like, I'm going to try to follow to the best mm -hmm, of my ability. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because some days I, I can see exactly the next step ahead of me, and some days I'm Indiana Jones stepping out yeah. in faith and just trusting there's going to be something underneath me. Yeah. I think it's important, too, to see that the not just that there's multiple voices on issues like this in the, in the Scripture storytelling, but I think even that there's a, a progression to the narrative, too. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's important that it doesn't start out with um, God sometimes allows... Uh, God sometimes uh, brings about the loss rather than the victory, and it doesn't move to nope. God is always on the side of the winner, but the other mm -hmm. way around. That that breaking up, and again, that's for me. That that's part of what the cross is all about. That ultimately we see something about who G who God is in mm -hmm. Jesus, and in God's what looks like utter defeat in the cross. Um, and I, I I guess I think that that direction that that trajectory is important too in our thinking. Um, but that changes how we use the Bible. Because, again, we're so used to a mentality of the Bible is a recipe book. And mm -hmm. you like just like in my you know, cookbook at home, the, there's one place to find how to make biscuits. It's in this page. And if I, there's one place to find, you know, baked Alaska on another page. But there's one place to get the answer. And we sometimes treat the Bible that way. You know, what, what does the Bible have to say about violence? Oh, well, go to the book of Joshua. It says it's okay and mandated mm -hmm. by God. And when you win, that's how you know God is on your side. And when you lose, that's how you know God is not on your side. And that's not really how to make sense of the Bible. It reminds me of the um, this episode of the old sitcom Friends. Um, do you know that the episode where uh, the character played by Lisa Kudrow, um, uh, she, she was Phoebe, and in the beginning of the episode, she talks about how she hates the movie It's a Wonderful Life because it's so sad, um, and it turns out she's only ever seen the first like uh, hour of the movie so she doesn't know that the end he doesn't kill himself and the mm -hmm. end Jimmy Stewart discovers it is a wonderful life and how great it is and everything's oh, spoiler happy spoiler alert what's that spoiler alert you seriously alert. haven't seen it's a wonderful life no I haven't <laughs> um, uh, and then there's another running gag about how she how much she loves the movie Old Yeller because she's only ever seen the first hour of that and I'm like what a great what a playful romp about a boy and his dog and doesn't find out about having to shoot mm -hmm. Old Yeller at the end but like sometimes I think like we did the same thing with the bible mm -hmm. that like um, we we forget that there's a movement toward Jesus and that, at least for Christians, that's an important interpretive move. And I would say, too, even in, in Judaism today, even without Jesus as a figure for interpretation, the prophets are an important piece that, like, mm -hmm. you know what? We don't live in uh, the wilderness uh, of Sinai anymore, and so there are ways the prophets sort of tweak or change or adjust. Um, and that that both Judaism and Christianity have had to live with that idea of don't just read one verse and stop. I mean, we even saw that in the very first episode of this series where the God's commandment about um, anybody who kills human blood, they die. Well, even later on, the Torah is like, well, okay, if it was accidental, you don't have to kill them. You know, mm -hmm. if they're ox gored, they're ox. Okay, don't let that ox around people anymore. But, like, you don't have to kill somebody because that, that, that later on gets this sort of clarity. And that suggests that there's a narrative flow to the scripture, even a development of ideas that, again, we're not used to, to d talking about. 
Oh, and so often when it comes to this book, you know, we know the story of Jericho. We know that felt bored Bible story. Right. And one of my frustrations, and I was I was the same way before I went to seminary, so mm -hmm. I'll admit, I, I was just like this. I knew the story of Jericho, and I didn't know anything else about the book of Joshua, is that we, we just pull out those those hero stories right. of Jericho and David and Goliath, but we right. don't read the whole thing, and, and we don't take the time to wrestle with it. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that has done a disservice to the church. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And, and I think maybe, to be fair too, about us as religious professionals, it takes a lot more work to present the whole of a biblical book with all that nuance, oh, gosh, yeah. and it can be like, you know what, if I make you read all this, then, and you actually read it, you're going to be upset or disgusted by it, or I'm either going to be put in the possession of defending something that I don't, or running the risk that it will then get used and misused. I mean, like, it's this thinking of the conquest story that absolutely you could draw a through line to manifest destiny in American history and the Trail of Tears. And I mean, it was that they used the exact same biblical length and said, well, just like the Israelites were allowed to kill those pagans in the land that they occupied because they were promised by God. And there are you know, scores of uh, American preachers and theologians who use that. Well, clearly, we're like the new Israel, like conveniently forgetting that Judaism continued. <laughs> um, but like, um, we're the new Israel, and therefore we are allowed to. In fact, it is our divine right and commandment to kill the people who live here because they're dirty pagans, and we're the righteous. I mean, like that language is a part of at least American Christian history that we've got to deal with, too. And um, I guess that's one of the things that I'm most concerned about is it, I, I, I think this, this book needs to be in our scriptures for, for a reason, and part of that storytelling is important. But I'm really concerned about how super easy it is for us to cast ourselves as um, divinely uh, appointed, um, we're here to cleanse the land of them pagans, um, and that very easily leads to terrible tragedy done, and done in the name of God. I mean, and that, that makes it all the worse, that it's not just um, we do terrible things and then realize, oh, that was terrible, we've turned away from God, but when you're convinced, it, there's, a, there's that line of Blaise Pascal that nobody does evil so cheerfully as when they think that they've got God's approval doing it. Um, and that, yeah, that, yeah, that's one of the concerns I have about, about how we deal with a, a book like this. I'm not sure we've solved anything, but I'm not sure we were looking to solve anything. <laughs> I think part of what this whole series is, that at least I'm discovering, it's more like we've got to be honest and, and see mm -hmm. that this is a part of our story, this is a part of our family history, so to speak, as the, the people of faith, and that to own our family stories, we've got, we got to read the things that we maybe skipped out on before and live with those questions. And it's okay to be uncomfortable every once in a while as we wrestle with those questions. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's a really good point, and maybe one that we can land on for today, huh? Sounds like land. Well, thanks for uh, joining us for conversation today. Join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. As we continue to be uncomfortable with our questions. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, everybody. See y'all. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.